voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. I am your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or if you're associated with a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection as well, and you can check out their catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome to the program Jen Senko. She is the writer and director of the award-winning award -winning documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad. She's also the uh, co-director of The Vanishing City, and she most recently has completed a book based on the uh, movie, Brainwashing of My Dad. Jen, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Ed. I I'm, uh, appreciate being on. Sure. Hey, so first of all, again, I've, I've seen the film. And folks, if you haven't watched The Brainwashing of My Dad, it is a critically important documentary. It will tell you so much about what's wrong with America. But uh, Jen, in your words, a little background on the film. Okay, so <clears throat> in the film and the book, the book, of course, is more updated, I look at the reasons and plan behind the rise of right-wing media through the lens of my World War II vet dad, um, whose personality and politics drastically changed after his discovery of talk radio and mm. a lengthened commute to work. Um, and this is a phenomenon across America. Tens of millions, yeah, I documented my dad's change from a kind-hearted, non-political Kennedy Democrat to an argumentative, super angry, right-wing fanatic. Um, and, and the film shows the history of how, in their goal for one-party rule, right-wing oligarchs and libertarian billionaires gobbled up and monopolized media for the express purpose of shaping the views of Americans, to have them actually vote against their own interests and in the interests of the billionaires and the you know, paternal hierarchy. So um, the book and movie also show the tactics and brainwashing techniques uh, that, um, they, that they became experts in in order to, to further their, their goals. But... The film and the book do have a happy ending insofar <laughs> as my dad is concerned. And so it also gives some hope to some people in the country. Um, should I just say bas basically briefly what did happen? Sure. Doesn't it? Okay, so... A, a we, 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 love happy, we, we love happy endings. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think it's really important because it says something. Um, after my parents moved to a senior community and my dad's radio broke in the move, Mercifully. Uh, the, the, therefore Rush was suddenly gone from his, his lunch hour. Uh, he and my mom started eating lunch together again. 
And then something else happened with the TV in the kitchen where he used to watch Fox and my mom got a new TV and programmed the remotes and <laughs> other, a couple other things happened. You know, he went into the hospital for a kidney stone and, you know, she unsubscribed him to all his right wing emails and resubscribed him to like alternate truth out and all these, you know, different ones. So over time, devoid of the, of the sources, he changed back to his old, open-minded, sweet self. So, so my guess is the power media. My, yeah, my guess is that that is not very common. That the the more usual route is somebody gets sucked into that vortex yeah. and they never come out again. Yeah, unfortunately, because it's like uh, deprogramming a person in a cult. It's very difficult, you know. And and you know, often what we know happens um, is that the the family gathers around that person and does an intervention and there's an expert there who helps deprogram. Um, so yeah, once it, it's, you know, people experience cognitive dissonance once you start challenging their, their beliefs, because a lot of it is all wrapped up in, in who they are, you know, in their self identity. Now, so, now, now, unfortunately, yeah. Now to call, uh, to call what, happened to your dad brainwashing i mean that's mm -hmm. that's more about the source of the information than about the recipient of the information and that would suggest that um programs on commercial radio rush limbaugh comes to mind of course but many many others michael savage glenn beck clay and buck sean hannity a long list of people who are touting the same party line and yes i do mean republican party but also a very narrow perspective on what it means to be uh, to be a part of that 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 uh, that in perspective, but um, to call that brainwashing, some would argue that that is uh, unfair and even dismissive of the um, of the uh, importance of providing a different perspective than you might find on the mainstream media. How do you address that concern that that maybe calling it brainwashing is going too far? Um, well, when I when I first um, titled the movie, uh, you know, I, I got a little pushback, you know. Um, I had one uh, investor helping me, and he's like, I don't know, that's really inflammatory. And I said, <laughs> well, I, this is the way it feels to people. This is this is how it feels to people, and pe it will resonate. And sure enough, you know, it did resonate with people. Um, but more than that, after I, um, you know, talked to some neuroscientists and um, – delved more deeply into the subject, I, I, I realized, oh, he, he was bra uh, brainwashed. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I guess that there is um, intention um, behind that word. Um, you know, it could, it could, it, it happens by, it happens by stealth or by, you know, coercion. So obviously it wasn't coercion. He wasn't being tortured and, you know, in some <laughs> camp, you know. Um, but by stealth is, um, it's, it's, it's intentional and there's mechanisms and there's devices and tactics which can be used to help specifically, you know, using emotion and anger mm. to, to jar people's, like, amygdala and you know change their chemistry and they they become addicted so you know 
Insofar as what I have learned about brainwashing and what I have learned about right-wing media and its intent, yes, uh, I've, I've come to believe he was okay. brainwashed, and, I think. And yeah, you, I think it you, is fair. And you mentioned that the, the, the tools used by the right-wing shock jock hosts, uh, including motion and anger, uh, in addition to emotion and anger, I would add humor. Uh, I mean, Rush Limbaugh, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. early on, he was pretty funny. He did some hysterical yeah. things that were uh, oh, really yeah. pushing the envelope, um, but but yeah. genuinely funny. He was very talented. He and, was very talented. And, and, he, and, was, he was, yeah, he was a, um, a unicorn, I guess you'd call it, you know, at the time. <laughs> yeah. I wish he was entirely mythical, but I guess that's not the case. Um, <laughs> so to what, <laughs> to what extent, though, I mean, we had under Ronald Reagan, the F, the, the FCC, uh, did away with the fairness doctrine, which was which which meant that these commercial stations did not have to provide any balance at all. And then, of course, under Bill Clinton, I mean, with, with again Newt Gingrich shepherding it through the U.S. Congress, Bill Clinton signed the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed big corporations to own as many stations in any market as they wanted to, as they were able to buy. And that's that's I mean, those two things to me have that's what's allowed radio commercial radio to become a one you know a, a one horse show uh, focused entirely on this this radical right perspective that again you right. have called brainwashing and i i think uh, i'm not going to disagree with you on that but i think i think in, in you know at the foundation of this uh, yeah there there certainly may have been there have been political operatives who wanted to create this tool for domination of the electorate for a particular political purpose, for the purpose of the oligarchy. But I think it was a bipartisan effort to dismantle the public airways, you know, with Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton being the primary culprits. Yeah. Am, I, am I going too far with that? Uh, <clears throat> no, absolutely not. Um, uh, uh, now, this is, this is subjective, but I remember at the time, um, this is when I was just starting to get involved in, in politics, I I felt like the country was moving to the right in this direction since Reagan, and it was really like a sweeping move, you know, like like a a, a river running through a town, um, and I felt like it was almost a little miracle that Bill Clinton got elected, and I think that if he were any further to the left, um, well, he was given a lot of crap anyway. But uh, <laughs> he might he might not have been elected. But he still, you know, he still did these these things that um, I think in trying to be bipartisan and you know who knows how much influence the soft money gave. Uh, but I think he was one of these. Guys, he's one of these presidents that, you know, kind of like President Obama, um, that really wanted to be liked and really thought that he could work across the aisle. And I don't, I don't, yeah, this was very unfortunate. I mean, he also um, this dismantled uh, dismantled the Glass-Steagall um, yes. Act, you know, which well, uh, prevented. Yeah checking and right. savings, you know, and then after that, like, that's when we had big yeah. crashes. And, and there was welfare, but, um, welfare yeah. reform, mm -hmm. and there was uh, don't ask, don't tell. I mean, the list of bad things that Bill Clinton did 
is phenomenally long, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I was a Democratic lawmaker for 14 years, and I can't, I can only think of a very small list of things that Bill Clinton accomplished that that were compatible with, with my agenda as a as a Democrat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I I was just learning about politics back then, and I didn't really realize how bad it was, although I had a boyfriend at the time who was like, <laughs> you know, always complaining, you know, because he was too, too yeah. Bill Clinton was too so, far right. And I was so, like, yeah, but we wouldn't have had a Democrat, blah, 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 blah. So, we, know, we've, got, so, so we, we've got this, uh, this monopoly within commercial radio. And again, the ra- people forget, the radio airwaves are... De- described as a public amenity, uh, we we yeah. own them like we well like we own the interstate highways, or the air traffic yeah. travel air, travel uh, routes. You know we, we own, own those the public airways, but we don't own them anymore. Really, for all practical purposes, they're now owned by a very small number of, co- of corporations that don't have to provide any balance, any fairness. And again, right. how do you how do we fix that? I mean, you you're you're the movie and your book, uh, the brainwashing of my dad. Has a happy ending. Most of the most of the people, and again, let's be honest, mostly older white men, uh, middle-aged or older white men who get sucked into this vortex of right-wing radio, don't come out. Um, how do we fix it? How do we? I, I mean, I, for the life of me, I don't understand why Democrats don't talk about reestablishing the fairness doctrine or repealing the Telecommunications Act. But that, that'd be my my recipe for for fixing the problem. What's what's yours? How do you see us getting to the point where this is? fixed? Well, it's a very difficult question, and I ask myself that every week, and each week I come up with different answers. <laughs> Good. But, but, but um, I mean, pushing antitrust laws and enforcing antitrust laws is very important. Like, uh, right now, Penguin Random House right, 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 uh, right. Want, wants to buy um, uh Oh, own Simon and Schuster. So, thank goodness the um, Justice Department is fighting that. But for too long, Republicans were pushing deregulation, deregulation, deregulation. I think that maybe we're finally pushing back a little bit. So that has to be emphasized, the antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Fairness Doctrine, because it got such um, a bad name, it, it many people, like on you know, our team or whatever, they feel like that wouldn't pass. Um, plus, like you said, it only addresses public airwaves. And so now there's the Internet mm-hmm. and there's... Um, cable, um, you know, but I still think that there's so many people that are angry. I think if they pushed and made our um, uh, officials aware that we would like to see some sort of fairness doctrine, um, this is just my opinion that you know, we could move in that direction. And then um, the Telecommunications Act, again, I think it comes down largely to um, communicating to our elected officials that media, right-wing media in, in particular, or especially, I should say, has a big problem. Yeah. And we, we, they need to address it. For too long they've hit their head in the sand because... Yep. 
um, it was an uncomfortable topic, you know, like b- b- bringing up religion or sex or politics at, at, at a family dinner. Right. It was an uncomfortable subject yeah. because Republicans they knew would jump down their throat. And then also because the, the, um, the, the First Amendment, the, the free, free speech, um, unfortunately, that has that, <laughs> that freedom is what's kind of causing our demise. And Many left-wingers, they're afraid to touch that because, yeah. for good reason, they don't want the, the government be the one to regulate. But, for God's sakes, I mean, it's like having Tokyo Rose on ABC, um, you know, during World War II and <laughs> saying, well, there's free speech. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that some better minds than myself and... Um, I know Ellie Mistal was talking about this. Uh, so was Emily Bazelon, yeah. um, and they got they got really they got crap because hmm. they were you know tampering with this idea of free speech. But other democratic countries, yeah, we need um, to we need to dig into that a little bit more. That's a really uh, really important discussion. Yeah. how to fix it. Hey, I'm Jen. I got to run to a break, uh, folks. We've been talking with Jen Senko, and you ought to check out her documentary called The Brainwashing of My Dad, and also, more recently, her book by the same title. Uh, Jen, if people want to uh, find out more about your movie and your book, where do they go? Well, they can go to www.thebrainwashingofmydad.com, and there's um, a page for where to see the documentary. Uh, You can see it for free in many places, and then there's also a page for the book. Great. yeah. All right, Jen. We thank- can find it from independent media stores. There you go. Good call, <laughs> Jen. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Hey, folks. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with Alicia Vasto of the Iowa Environmental Council about water quality. And FYI, brain-eating amoeba-killing swimmers in Iowa is the least of our water quality concerns. We've got a lot more to worry about than that. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. 
Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever, so please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website, sign up for our weekly blogs, uh, donate. Uh, if you're a business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking to sponsors, thanks to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Uh, again, great food, great customer service, a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere and an awesome outdoor patio. Vibes is the perfect place for parties and for watching your favorite sports team. You can learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar Facebook page. Alicia Vasto with the uh, Iowa Environmental Council. She's the Associate Water Program Director. With me in the studio, Alicia, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And we're talking water quality today. And I want to start off with talking about the one water quality issue that at least if you're in Iowa, and perhaps other parts of the country as well. The one water quality issue that's on everybody's mind, speaking of minds, and that is the brain-eating amoeba that, no joke, killed somebody who got infected by this while swimming in a lake in southwest Iowa. Okay, not the most serious water quality concern, but something that people are, con are, are interested in and worried about. Yeah, it definitely drew a lot of attention to Iowa's water quality issues, although it's um, an extremely rare occurrence and we have some other really serious water quality issues that we should be paying more attention to. So what caused this brain-eating amoeba to be able to live? Well, apparently it's actually pretty common, um, a common amoeba um, in waterways, um, usually in southerly states, um, but it can get kicked up into the water column. And, you know, if people uh, get it up their nose, they have a chance of, of getting infected. Mm. But again, it, it's really, really rare. Um, but this is the first case of it, you know, being associated with a waterway in Iowa. And um, it's it's definitely a little bit disturbing, and yeah. you know, being associated with warmer water temperatures is kind of an interesting. Well, well sure, yeah, with with climate change and mm -hmm. everything getting warmer, mm -hmm. uh, is it possible that this will increase in volume and and ferocity? Well, yeah, it's possible. I mean, just thinking, you know, that this has happened much more commonly in southern states, and so maybe it is going to become mm. a little bit more prevalent here in the Midwest. Okay, and again. Another water quality concern, not the top of the list <laughs> in terms of most serious problems, but mm -hmm. again, newsworthy, Yes, uh, is the massive carp die-off. And a lot of people don't really care about carp anyhow, so carp die-off, who cares? But no, it's a problem. But I mean, they were um, Storm Lake. It's a, by Iowa standards, a large lake in, northern, in the northern part of the state. And uh, what, a couple thousand or tens of thousands? How many thousands died? Um, I believe it was several thousand, maybe 1,600 was the last number that I heard. So, um, yeah, a really strange occurrence. Um, I, I think, you know, just having this big die-off 
really gross at a very you know popular recreational lake um deterring visitors and just stinking up the place for all the people that live there it's really um, yeah they 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 didn't i was hoping they'd compost them i would have loved to to have them deliver them here we put them (laughs) under our tomato plants but but i guess they'd landfill them yeah yeah it sounded like they landfilled them and then they were also telling people to just kick them back into the water so that they would decompose faster in the water that doesn't sound brilliant no i (laughs) who told who gave them that advice (laughs) the dnr oh my gosh so uh, but here's the big question is what caused this massive carp die-off um, apparently, it was a koi herpes virus um, that, yeah, targets like particular species of fish. Well, so. You think of herpes as being um, uncomfortable in humans, but yeah. not usually fatal. Uh, yeah, apparently it goes after their gills and can cause lesions, and so then that can cause breathing issues. Okay, noted. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. so um, bigger issues in terms mm-hmm. of water quality, and again... I will remind our audience, whatever state you're in, especially if you're in Louisiana, that, um, and I apologize for the fact that Iowa is the biggest contributor to uh, runoff, nutrient and soil runoff, nitrogen and soil runoff into the Mississippi River. Uh, We're the biggest contributor to the uh, dead zone of the Gulf. Other states have taken greater action. Again, apologies. Some of us have been fighting to try to get that to change, but we have uh, leadership in the state that doesn't seem to mind the fact that, well, as long as we get to do what we want to do here, to heck with what's happening in the dead zone of the Gulf. I digress a little bit, but uh, this brings us to the question of a nutrient reduction plan. Obviously, we need to be reducing the nutrient runoffs. We're not doing a very good job. What? Uh, but but I understand, Alicia, that there is some progress and maybe some light at the end of the tunnel on this one. Well, I mean, there's certainly some progress. There are more cover crops being implemented across the state, which is, um, you know, really important. Um, but the the adoption of other conservation practices has been really slow and not at the scale and scope at which is necessary to actually see uh, reductions of nutrient pollution. What, what kind of uh, practices are we talking about? Um, so implementing buffers, um, introduce doing no-till, um, implementing bioreactors, you know, some of these other edge of field practices, or just doing nutrient management in your fields, you know, applying the right rate of fertilizer so you're not over-applying it. Is over-fertilization a pretty common problem in the Corn Belt? Yes, yeah. You know, there's no limits on how much fertilizer can be applied. And, you know, while farmers will, will say, obviously, they don't want to over-apply yeah, it because it's expensive. Expensive, sure. Um, but it is relatively cheap insurance, as they say. So you might as well apply a little bit more than you need to make sure you get a good yield. Um, and, and that little bit of excess can really be a problem for our waterways. So other states in the upper, Midis- upper Mississippi water basin, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, uh, these states are doing a better job at managing nutrient runoff into the Mississippi River Basin. What are they doing differently? Well, Minnesota has a buffer requirement for their farm fields, so they can't plant within uh, 30 or 50 feet of any waterway. 30 feet? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they leave that space so there's not a lot of, you know, erosion and soil going right into the streams. And it just it just makes sense to do that. But they actually have a requirement. See, you know, back in the 90s when I was a state legislator, I proposed that there'd be a 16-foot, mm-hmm. that, that farmers be required to plant a 16-foot buffer. 
And that was royally shot down by the Farm yeah. Bureau. And now we're talking about a 30-foot buffer yes. that's required? Yeah, yeah. And they've had uh, over 99% compliance with that with that law. And, and that has just been huge. Um, you know, that's a very basic kind of regulation that we could apply here in our state that just seems like common sense. And uh, is there some financial assistance from the state to help farmers with that transition? Yeah, there's very, there's various pots of money that can help with the cost share of implementing um, buffers or other conservation practices, either from the state uh, Department of Ag or from the USDA. Of course, the other, one, one of the other costs is you no longer get to plant that area of the, your field. Mm-hmm. And so every year, in theory, you have a, a particular you know stretch of land that, uh, that that is lost in terms of productivity. Yep. Is, is, does the does the financial assistance help help with uh, addressing the future crop losses? Yeah, you know, you can put those buffers into CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, and get you know yearly payments mm. uh, for taking them out of production pr- production and protecting the water. Yeah. All right. And uh, that's uh, Minnesota, you said. Yes. What about some of the other states in the Upper Midwest Basin? Um, you know, some of the other states, I think, are having similar problems. Um, you know, they don't have the kinds of regulations that Minnesota has either. But, you know, here in Iowa, we have the most nutrients to lose. We're, you know, farming 26 millions of acres, uh, 26 millions of acres in corn and soybeans in this state. And so that just the the scale of that is so immense that it's hard to get a handle on our nutrient mm. pollution. Okay. Yeah, so that's being discussed right now. To, uh, to, I mean, we have, we have a nutrient reduction plan, but there's yes. no, there's no, there's no accountability. I understand. I mean, I, I was looking at the uh, water quality monitoring report that the IEC released. Uh, what was it a few weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll read the um, what I thought was the telling uh, comment there. Without monitoring, Iowa will continue to throw money at the state's water quality problem without knowing whether its effect toward achieving the state's goals. It is irresponsible and unjust to continue spending taxpayer dollars without assessing the outcomes. So how does a Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, feel about that statement? <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, what, what we constantly hear from the politicians in this state is that we need to be partnering and working collaboratively to, to get the nutrient reduction strategy implemented. But the fact of the matter is, um, it's a completely voluntary strategy. And to do that, you have to have volunteers. <laughs> and so well, without that, you know, we need some kind of regulation or some kind of um, consequences for not doing doing better. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we're throwing taxpayer money at this problem, trying to implement these practices, but we're not doing it in a strategic or um, kind of holistic way where we're really addressing the issue. Yeah, one concern I have is that uh, Iowa seems to be, and this is true of many states in the upper Midwest region, so we seem to be in a drought flood mm-hmm. cycle, and lately it's been drought, and uh, it's particularly bad in some parts of the state right now. And I look at uh, central Iowa, which is one of the areas of the state that is growing in population. And I look at all the, I'm going to call it urban sprawl, all the development, uh, housing, but also commercial development, more roads. And all that development uh, is requires more water. And yet we have less water. How is how is I mean, this is a question beyond water quality. This is a question of water quantity. We have more demand 
and we have the probability of, at times, less resource. Is that at all being addressed? Yeah, I think that issue has drawn a lot more attention in the past uh, three years. We've had you know serious drought last year, which started in 2020. Um, and um, obviously we had some serious flooding in, in 2019. And so it's definitely taken on uh, more prevalence, I think, in, in everybody's minds. And um, the state is working on a drought preparedness plan now to actually help address uh, some of those issues that mm-hmm. I don't think have been really thought about in a, a serious way before. But you talk to any city planner or city manager or even most politicians at the uh, local level, and you don't hear anybody saying, well, we've got to start cutting back on our growth and development. It's, it's a problem with our available water. Nobody says that. Yeah. How do you get them to start thinking about the reality of a limited resource? Uh, and as you continue to tax that resource more and more, there's going to be less and less of it. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, people are becoming aware of the issue. And um, it's... Uh, definitely important for people to be thinking about as we're constantly thinking about this growth. And we've always been so rich in water in this state. We've always really taken Mm -hmm. it for granted. And so having these um, seasons where it's been really, really dry, putting that more at the forefront. And I I hope that people take it seriously. Yeah. And I doubt doubt that's going to happen without (laughs) enforcement and without a change of um, perspective. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the endless growth paradigm, which again, is what our economy is based on, but it's also what our land use policies are based on. I mean, when I was an urban, when I was a legislator, a big part of my focus was urban sprawl, and you could not convince a city planner or city manager uh, that there was something wrong with the expression "if we don't grow, we die." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I try to, I try to say, you know, think of it from an organic point of view. From a, from a, you know, think of yourself. If you stop growing physically at age 19, 20, that's a good thing. You know, if you keep expanding, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're going to explode at some point. You know, so at some point we have to redefine urban growth and development as not so much as expanding the boundaries of the city and increasing its its use of resources, but of building on what what we have inside. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of ways to do that that are more sustainable than our current practice. So I don't know how you get that into the fix, into the conversation, but... um, it's got to happen. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, efficiency is a major part of sustainability. Yeah. So. Well, Alicia, I really appreciate your work and the work of the Iowa Environmental Council and of similar councils in other states around the country that are doing really, really important work. Uh, Alicia Vasto, folks, with the Iowa Environmental Council, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, again, this is Ed Fallon. When we come back after a short break, uh, we're going to discuss um, – what the rest of the media, including the angry shock jocks, are saying about the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. 
Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. back to the Fallon Forum. And you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westerm and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. That's daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. So uh, earlier in this program, we were talking with Jen Senko, the writer and producer, director of The Brainwashing of My Dad. And again... You know, it's so clear to me and to, I think, more and more people that the wholesale, you know, selling off of our public airways to a handful of big corporations is a problem, not just a problem in terms of how it affects uh, a whole millions of Americans who believe everything they hear from some pretty biased uh, sources, but it's also, you know... It's, it's created an imbalance in terms of use of the public airways. That's one reason I'm so excited about community-owned stations. And again, this program broadcasts on eight stations in six states. But uh, I think, you know, our, the, the, the station we've been with the longest is KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames. And I'm, uh, I'm de- delighted to have Mike Murphy, the station manager, join us for a short bit here. Mike, how are you? Pretty good. How about yourself, Ed? Very, very good. And I understand that uh, KHOI is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary, which is pretty impressive. It's, it's very impressive. I mean, the impressive part was, was all the hard work that took place to get it to the point of actually getting on the air. There's a, there was a lot of people that did a lot of great things to make it happen and were uh, so grateful to those people who... Yeah who did uh, work so hard without uh, the, the instant gratification that a lot of us have who work in yeah. community radio where we can hear the results of, the, uh, of our efforts uh, right away. But yeah. people worked hard and hard and hard without being able to hear immediate results, and that impresses me. And I feel indebted to those people that we are standing on their shoulders. You know, yeah, and there's so many things that need to change, but I mean, I mean it's impressive that, that so many people around the country are finding ways of carving out a niche in the public airwaves where you can have local voices, where you can have voices that aren't extreme, as most of them are on commercial radio stations. So yeah, it's, um, it's great that you've, uh, you've come to the 10-year anniversary, and uh, what kind of celebration you got planned? Big cake? Well, we're going to be doing a lot of on-air stuff 
this week. Uh, you can hear, uh, listen to local talk all week, and you'll hear some great uh, interviews with people both from the present and the past. Uh, there's going to be a larger, like, in-person celebration that will, pro it looks like that's uh, going to be sometime next month. But that's all we know at this point. And um, but right. uh, stay tuned, as okay. we say in the radio business. We'll, Very good. We'll let you uh, know about that. Um, but we're, you know, we're trying to uh, celebrate ourselves on uh, on the airwaves. Use use the airwaves. There's been yeah. some great voices on KHOI over the years. And as I go through our archives, I'm dis discovering some people. Uh, that I've never met before that have been doing impressive work. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to join us. I know as the station manager, you're very busy. Um, and again, congratulations to KHOI on celebrating 10 years on the air. Uh, folks, talking with Mike Murphy, station manager at KHOI. Thank you, Ed. All right. Hey, folks, uh, we're going to switch gears here and talk about the FBI raid, as it's called by some, at Mar-a-Lago. So uh, this is more serious. The, the more we see, the more serious it gets. Uh, I mean, investigators discovering classified documents. You know, they didn't just barge in there on a whim. They, they had real reasons to be really, really concerned. And uh, Secret Service agents uh, described the situation with, quote, boxes everywhere. Uh, I, mean, I, 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 I would have thought that... President Trump and his, former President Trump and his uh, folks would have been more careful about stashing these boxes somewhere, not just everywhere. But um, again, the, uh, the documents are so sensitive, so secretive that it's, it's very possible that we'll never know, it's probable, I'd say, we'll never know all of what's in there. Uh, a lot of concern about whether or not there's, you know, nuclear-related stuff in there. Who knows what that could be? But... Um, you know, the, so, so last Friday, last week, again, this happened a week ago Monday, and then on, by, on Friday, uh, the, um, the whole circumstances around the FBI's uh, search, and that search is a better word than raid, um, you know, that, that all came into much more uh, clear focus. Um, and one of the bottom lines is this, things look even worse for Trump than he probably thought. <laughs> uh, and some are saying, well, this is, a, this, is a, this is wrong. You can't just raid a person's home. I mean, Trump was saying that, but certainly a lot of other people were saying that you can't just walk into his home and, and unannounced at an a, a uncomfortable hour of the morning and, and search things. Well, I guess you can. It's called the Espionage Act of 1917. And uh, that's also, by the way, the statute that was used to go after Julian Assange uh, after the alleged uh, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks um, fiasco. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's on the books. It's been used before, and it was used last week at Mar-a-Lago. Now, um, again, who knows what's in there? I mean, we will know, we will know about some of the stuff. What has been released is the, uh, the search document itself, so we know about that. But, um, you know, there's a lot we won't know, but <laughs> the... Uh, they, and that, that hasn't stopped the, um, the unhinged uh, radical right from going ballistic, okay? Now, here's you know, Clay, Tra Clay, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Those are the, uh, the two um, shock jocks who replaced Rush Limbaugh. 
Yes, it takes two new shock jocks to fill the shoes of one Rush Limbaugh. Uh, Travis uh, gave his legal perspective on the FBI storming of President Trump's home. Um, he called it, he said, he, he said, he called it in storming the president's home, breaking into a safe, trampling our democracy in the process. And he says, I think this actually makes Donald Trump stronger. Well, one thing that's clear is that the, uh, the voices on commercial radio are going to continue to uh, defend Trump, to criticize the FBI. And in fact, some of the criticism of the FBI has been so strident that in Ohio we saw uh, an attempt, uh, uh, an attack on an FBI headquarters there. I, you know, I, and I'm, I, I, I've, been, I've been a non-fan of the FBI all my adult life. Um, and in fact, I have a very funny story about me and the FBI. Uh, back when I had, uh, I, had uh, I had established, me and a few others, had established a peace group. This was back in the uh, 1980s. And this is before the age of computers, even before the age of cell phones, for sure. And we had a landline. And somehow that landline was also the landline of the FBI. And so we would get people calling for the FBI and hearing me or someone else answer the phone. Hello, campaign for nuclear disarmament. Can I help you? Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I can only imagine uh, what the person on the other end of that line thought. Usually what we heard was a click. But at one point, we actually got a call from the FBI, from, from the FBI, and they were saying, who's this, please? Uh, well, this is Ed Fallon. I'm, who are you with? I'm with a campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, how did you get this number? Um, you'll have to talk to uh, the phone company about that, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I really have no idea what kind of consternation it caused within the FBI, but it gave us... No end of laughter. Uh, I have no idea whether they were using that that uh, that fact to spy on us. But you know, again, I've always I've never been a fan of the FBI. But I have never advocated going in and shooting FBI agents. And um, you know, it's got it's gotten so crazy that uh, that uh, some some Republicans in Congress, not just those radical voices on the commercial airwaves, they're they're comparing the FBI to the to the Gestapo. And again, even in my long history of not being a fan of the FBI, I've never compared them to the Gestapo. Um, they've even said that we should defund the FBI. In fact, not only did they say defund the FBI, but some were using that as a fundraiser. So, you know, it's just really hard to take, take these folks seriously when, you know, they criticize defund the police, which, for the record, I do not support. Uh, and then they use the slogan, defund the FBI, which again, the FBI is, let me think, oh yeah, they're kind of like the police anyway, uh, and then using it as a fundraiser. So, um, you know, apparently uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott was one of those who um, compared the FBI to the uh, Gestapo, the Nazi, uh, Nazi Germany's secret police force. But not all Republicans have been off the rails on this. Um, some of the governors around the country have been criticizing uh, Scott's response, some of the other uh, extreme responses, uh, you know, and um, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who I think was in Iowa recently, he uh, described the attacks as both, quote, absurd and dangerous. And some Republicans, uh, again, uh, pushed back against that. But Hogan, Hogan said the comparisons of the FBI to Nazi Germany 
are, quote, very concerning to me. It's outrageous rhetoric. So the big question, of course, uh, from a political point of view is, what do the polls say? Because it's all about the polling, right? Yeah. Um, I kind of wish we would either do away with or minimize or put some kind of restrictions on polling. But in this case, it's interesting. I'll talk about it. The um, Politico Morning Consult poll uh, just, um, I think it was, uh, it might have been the, yeah, I think it was last, tail end of last week, uh, found that 49% of those surveyed said the, uh, said the search warrant uh, was primarily conducted because of evidence that Trump had committed a crime. In other words, about half of Americans uh, approved of the search, thought it was done for legitimate reasons. And again, I, you know, if I was polled on that question, I might, I might say, well, I don't know enough. Uh, maybe we know enough now or starting to know enough. But, you know, last week, a few days after the actual search, I don't know. I don't know if I would have felt I knew enough. But 39% of those polled in the political morning consult survey, uh, 39% said the search was conducted mostly to damage Trump's political career and 37% disapproved of the FBI's actions. So that's still more than a third of Americans were not in favor of the, uh, of the action. Uh, so <laughs> how this pans out, I, it's a very significant development in the post-Trump presidency uh, anti-Trump uh, <laughs> uh, efforts. And again, I, you know, I, I, just, I want the truth to come out. I, I want I want us to know uh, what happened on January 6th. I want I want us to know what happened in the election. I think we pretty much have settled that. We kind of know that it wasn't stolen. And I want us to know what's you know, to the extent that we can, what's in those documents uh, that were taken at Mar-a-Lago. We have a right to know as much as we can know, and we have a right to know why. I mean, I, and I don't I don't think unless I'm unless I'm not aware of it, I don't think there's a historic precedent for a president making off with boxes and boxes of classified information after he or she, well, he, loses the presidency. Anyway, um, meanwhile, <laughs> i got to talk about this before we go, folks. Uh, a diesel pipeline in Wyoming owned by the True Company uh, released more than 45,000 gallons of fuel last week. 45,000 gallons, that's diesel fuel. Uh, interestingly, the company initially reported a 420-gallon leak. Oops, sorry, 45,000. They dropped a few zeros there, didn't they? That never happens, right? So the, the, the spill was caused by a crack at a weld in the line. Uh, and it was not known how long that pipe leaked before it was discovered. Fortunately, the uh, fuel did not find its way to any waterways. And no enforcement actions or environmental violations were planned, although personally I think they should be. Uh, so yeah, I reminder that all pipelines leak. Some leak worse than others. Uh, we remember the CO2 pipeline uh, rupture in uh, Satarsha, Mississippi a couple of years ago that sickened almost 50 people, nearly killed some of them, uh, sent a whole bunch to the hospital. And again, speaking of CO2 pipelines, uh, the uh, Summit, one of the three companies that want to build a CO2 pipeline through the upper Midwest, including 2,000 miles in Iowa, they have announced that they, they're, they're preparing to have their first public hearing. Uh, 
Now, I am... Um, I have a feeling that is going to be one very, very well-attended public hearing. But I want to say this. Uh, you know, in all the conversation about the, um, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the climate bill, let's be honest, what it is, you know, I've been criticized for, A, not coming out in opposition to the IRA, B, not coming out in support of the IRA. You know, it takes a long time to dry on legislation, especially federal legislation. And if I was a member of Congress, yeah, I would have been burning the candle at both ends to try to understand the IRA so I could cast the most responsible vote. But I'm not in Congress, and neither are most of you listening, and we have the luxury of taking our time. I advise that we all take our time. This is way more complicated than many people think. And, I, you know, there's so many levels that need to happen before this thing is implemented, but you know, but one thing I'm sure about is the components of this bill that deal with carbon sequestration are bad. We do not need a big corporate handout to Summit or Navigator or Valero or ADM or any other big corporation that wants to build a pipeline to take carbon dioxide from one source to North Dakota or Illinois, conveniently very close to where there are two big oil extraction opportunities because that's often what carbon dioxide gets used for, is further oil extraction. So whatever, whatever you come down with in terms of your assessment of the bill as a whole, the carbon sequestration component is bad news. All right, hey, this is Ed Fallon again. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns will join me for our farm and food segment, and we're going to discuss whether or not there might be lead in your backyard chicken eggs. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. With me in the studio now, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And we raise chickens. We raise chickens for eggs. And we're talking about eggs today because there's some information out there that deserves to be talked about. Lead. Yeah, that was a, a little uh, surprise when we became aware that there have been some articles floating around for, for years about 
lead in eggs, but the, the, the way the headlines read, you would think maybe that backyard eggs are always a problem. Um, for instance, uh, a headline that just came out this past week from uh, a media outlet in Australia, backyard hens eggs contain 40 times more lead on average than shop eggs research finds. <laughs> and they didn't say anything that was false in that headline. But they didn't tell the whole truth in the headline, of course. It's very, very inflammatory. Another headline from 2018 from uh, Boston University School of Public Health. Eggs of urban chickens contaminated with lead. So we had to dig into that. It's true. It there makes, is it, lead sound, in some it, makes eggs. it sound like all eggs are contaminated with lead. It does. The story out of Australia um, was from a news outlet called The Conversation. According to their website, they're a network of nonprofit media outlets that publish stories and research online with accompanying you know, comments. And to be clear, we want to discuss the problem of lead in eggs, but. Uh, it's also in some garden produce, but we want to note that the headlines have been misleading. An important detail that was left out of the Australia article headline was that the concern is mainly around lead in soil surrounding homes built before 1978 when lead was no longer at that time allowed in paint products. Yeah. So the older the homes, the more lead there may have been in the soil. Yeah, and my thought is, uh, okay, so... And I speak as a former homeowner who painted a house, what, four times while I lived there. <laughs> and, For how many years? Uh, 20 years, yep. 19 years. And, uh, and there, were, there, were, uh, there, was, uh, there was definitely lead in that paint. And it pretty much fell into the soil right by the house. Mm-hmm. So unless your coop is right next to the house, I, I can't imagine it being a problem. Well, the report also indicated that of... The eggs that they studied, 50% of the groupings of eggs were contaminated. So not all of them were. And of the 50% that were contaminated, what percent were, quote, 40 times worse than shop eggs? Correct. Or industrial eggs? But there, there is something to think about. If you are a backyard producer like we are, it's important to know that if your home was built before 1978, you have a higher risk of having lead in the soil. So as chickens scratch around, you know, they are finding bits of food and bugs and things Mm. and also gravelly bits that help their crop digest their food correctly. They pick up and ingest a lot of stuff, sometimes in spaces where older homes have been scraped and repainted. There might be bits of lead in there. So So you recommend testing your soil in your chicken coop. You can and, and yeah. we live in a very old home. We're going to have ours tested. Right. I've been in touch with the University of Iowa. They run the state hygienic laboratory and for it was lower cost than I thought, twenty dollars and fifty cents, we can send them a pint of soil yeah. and have them test it. Yeah, but you know, I mean a lot of the a lot, of the, a lot of the people who will be most impacted live in older homes in poorer neighborhoods where, you know, even a $20 fee is something they're not going to want to, That's not correct. Be able to afford. That's correct. However, I would be a little more surprised if we had a lot of lead in ours because we're in a brick building. Yeah. And they aren't always subject to a lot of different paintings. Yeah. Um, I think ours is painted right now. I don't know when it was painted, but we are going to get that checked out. If you're a consumer and you're concerned about this, uh, if you buy from backyard producers, 
go ahead and ask them if they have had a test. That is very fair to do. You may want to discuss this with them. I wouldn't rule it out right away. Uh, you yeah. can, however, keep in mind that the larger industrially produced commercial eggs are historically much more fraught with problems of salmonella oh, yeah. Yeah. than the backyard producers. So it's no time to discount eggs no matter what inflammatory headlines well, and, and the bird flu that was decimating flocks, I mean, the vast majority of those flocks were in industrial settings. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know I... I, and I, I agree that it makes sense to, to, if you're at all in doubt about whether you might have lead in your soil around your chicken coop, test it for sure. But I look at these headlines in particular and think, you know, who's behind this? I mean, I, I don't know. I, don't, I know nothing about this research. But if it's not sponsored by a big industrial egg interest, I wouldn't be, I, I'd, be, I'd almost be surprised if they weren't somehow involved right. in this kind of research. Remember last, it was a couple of years ago Three at the State ago. Fair? At mm -hmm. the State Fair. The industrial egg people had this display at the state fair, basically, you know, dismissing backyard chicken production, egg production, as as unhealthy, there were unsafe, big, unclean. Big posters about the hierarchy of the goodness of eggs, and at the top of the hierarchy was the industrial <laughs> eggs because they are quote clean and it's so safe for the hens. Uh, all the way down to <laughs> then, then free range was kind of the next level of okayness, and then the backyard and and was Dirty, at the very bottom. Yeah. And it's, they are dismissing the fact that it's yeah. the big industrial that has right. the most salmonella. Well, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Good research, and again, I think it makes sense. Test your soil if you live in a home built before 1978 and you got chickens, or for, or vegetables for that matter. But um, yeah. Anyway, I, we'll report back when we learn what our soil contains. I'm still absolutely convinced that our eggs are much better than anything you're going to get delicious. at an industrial source. Hey, uh, thanks to our guests and callers today, Jen Senko, Alicia Vasto, and Mike Murphy. Also to our production team of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Ederman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. And thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.